Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the podcast. This isn't one of my own podcasts, this is a discussion I had with Robin Gamble of the Scholar Warrior podcast. Uh, it was a really good discussion, I really enjoyed it. We discussed uh, philosophical side of things, uh, practical training, historical issues, the nature of kata, a whole host of topics, uh, which I, I'm sure you'll find uh, interesting. So I'm very grateful to Robin for uh, allowing me to share it via this feed as well. Uh, I will be back with a, an episode of the podcast soon, where I'll be discussing the two elements that I think all good approaches to martial arts should have in that they should be both life-preserving and life-enhancing. So I want to get right into the, the depths of what that means. Uh, so it's quite a uh, an in-depth podcast, that one, and that'll be coming soon. It's about half written now, so if you give me a little bit of time to, to put that together, you should find it in the uh, the feed soon. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy this discussion uh, with myself and, and Robin, and I'll be back with more information soon, okay? Until then, take care. Bye-bye now. Hello there, this is Robin Gamble. Welcome to the Scholar Warrior podcast. Now the idea of the Scholar Warrior has been around for thousands of years across many great cultures. And the concept is this, that one of the highest achievements in society is to become skilled in the martial arts while also pursuing the scholarly pursuits of painting, poetry, music, philosophy and more. So it's here that I interview martial artists as well as artists in various fields, so that you, the listener, can gain a peek into their techniques, skills, and strategies for success. And so that you, the listener, may gather these gems and apply them on your own path to self-mastery and excellence. Enjoy. Okay, so today I am talking to Ian Abernethy, who has been involved in the martial arts since childhood. And he holds the rank of sixth, sixth Dan with the British Combat Association, the English Karate Federation, and the British Karate Association. Now, he regularly uh, writes for the UK's leading martial arts magazines, and he's a member of the Combat Hall of Fame. Uh, he's one of the UK's leading exponents of applied karate, and Ian has written a number of critically acclaimed books on the practical application of traditional martial arts and is well known for his work on the pragmatic use of the techniques and concepts recorded in the traditional kata. Uh, so Ian's seminars and books, DVDs and articles have proved to be very popular with those who wish to practice their arts uh, as the more pragmatic systems they were originally intended to be. I'm a big fan of his style, as I've already told him, uh, of his content, of his presentation, and of his approach to his work. Uh, so I welcome Ian to the Scholar Warrior podcast. Welcome, Ian. Well, thank you. Very glad to be here. Okay. Great. So um, uh, I think the best place to start is at the beginning, uh, which tends to be the best place to start generally. So <laughs> how did you start out in martial arts, Ian? Um, taking it way back, right, right back. I, um, I the first time I can remember showing an interest in it was my dad used to go to the library every Saturday morning, uh, come back with some books for you know him and us to read. You see, and my dad got me one tongue in cheek one, which was How to Be a Spy, which he thought you know he'll enjoy this. Now in this How to Be a Spy book, 
there was a, a martial arts section, you know. So I remember looking at that and then thinking this was interesting. Uh, and then I, I can remember my dad taking all the covers off the, uh, the the sofa, the settee, putting them down on the ground to make mats. And then my dad had done a little bit of wrestling, Cumberland and Westmoreland wrestling when he was a younger man. So my dad showed me some wrestling style throws and takedowns and stuff, you see. So playing with my dad is the earliest recollection. And then when I got to do it properly, I was probably about 11 years old. Um, and I decided, you know, I wanted this martial arts things appeals. You know, I'd, I'd seen couple of bruce lee movies and things i thought i want to learn this um so again i went down the library myself i got a load of books out on martial arts and every book on martial arts tells you that you can't learn martial arts from a book so you know quite a shy kid didn't like the idea of going to a class that was a bit nerve-wracking for me um but nevertheless i thought if i want to be good at this i'm gonna have to do it so i went along with a few uh friends of mine to my first ever class and didn't like the first class got punched got dropped got knocked to the floor first class got found it incredibly confusing didn't enjoy it at all came out my mum said to me you know did you enjoy that because she's you know getting worried that Ian just doesn't do anything he's got no interests at all so she said you know did you enjoy it no I didn't so she's (laughs) disappointed and well maybe go next week and see what it's like well I went back the next week you'd been down to the karate class you got a hiding and then you decided to go back is that right (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I tell you, and all that was, and this is this is the the instructor at that time. But the, the reason I got, I remember getting the dropping was, uh, he was preparing the current crop of white belts for grading the next week. So they've obviously got a certain uh, level of skill with it now. They've got the grips with it, and I'm brand new. Yeah. So the, the the black belt that was taking my particular bit said to everybody that when we, you know, the turn round and the do the ki thing, you know, the shouting thing. Yeah. And he said, you know, you're not doing it right. He goes, let me show you. So he picks the biggest white belt and he says, go and punch me as hard as you can. Mm. So as he punches him in the stomach, you know, he kind of kiais and says, see, that's it. He said, I'm making myself stronger than him just because I'm shouting. Mm. He said, I'm tensing the muscles up. You know, I can take a shot. He said, that's, that's one of the reasons that we do that. He says, get with the partner and try it. Mm. So I'm hitting this guy and he's screaming and it's, ah, oh, you know, this is great. <laughs> and then, of course, he hits me and I, mm. <laughs> <laughs> this little kind of timid, whimper just again hits the solar plexus winds knocked out and we bent down yeah. the instructor comes over you know and the guys oh, i'm so sorry i'm so sorry you know because i'm 11 years old i'm a, a kid right yeah you know i'm so sorry i'm so sorry you know and, and the, the instructor goes it's not your fault because it's his fault he should have shouted better you know yeah. so i thought okay right. so I, i'm sure i want to go back here but when i left he said look i'm really sorry i couldn't spend a lot of time with you tonight i needed to get these lot ready for their grading come back next week i won't charge you for today's class come back next week and i'll spend some time with you mm-hmm. so i I felt there was an agreement in place, which, you know what I mean? So right. I didn't want to welch on the agreement, you know, and had to go back. So and when I went back and um, and, and trained, I thought, oh, this is actually quite good fun. And mm. I remember him correcting me on a reverse punch, and he said, yeah, that's it. And as soon as I knew, oh, maybe I can do this, you know, mm. it was, uh, I've got the right leg forwards and the right arm stuck out, so that's progress, you know. So, And that's why I decided to go back. Right, okay, so... So you were pretty lucky to get that second chance. Huh? So, so just having that kind of verbal agreement kind of tied you in to uh, keeping to your word and going back and giving it another, another try. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been, up until that point, I'd got pretty obsessive with martial arts. I was watching um, anything I could find on it. I was reading anything I could find on it, you know. So um, I, I think I was a little bit disappointed, firstly, that I'd proven not to be instantly fantastic at it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that, that's, you know, which, that was the first kind of disappointment to my um, young mind. 
Um, and, and the other one that, you know, this is something I want to be good at and it looks like that avenue might be closing down to me, you see. But, right. but I, for, for every time I went back, for, for, I remember it distinctly for maybe a year, I was uh, every morning, Sunday morning was the, the main class day. I, I would wake up in Sunday morning, I would iron my suit, I would get ready and I'd have butterflies and I'd be nervous. And mm. It took a long time for that to go away. So it wasn't like I, I walked into the dojo on the first occasion and everything was great and enjoyable and, you know, I loved it from that moment on. It was just, I just kind of worked through all of that because I knew I wanted to be, be, be good at it. I started to enjoy the feeling of making progress, you know. Mm, yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, I think it's also useful for for people that have not yet taken up martial arts to hear that as well, because they see someone like you, a sixth fan, and and just presume that you probably just fell into it and were just uh, you know kicking ass or whatever straight away. But but I'm often surprised when, for example, I teach Tai Chi Chuan or Qi Gong, and and someone immediately says after a first session, oh yeah, I'm not very good at that. Or, how, <laughs> how could you possibly know? You haven't even done, you haven't really done it, you know? Um, or like someone says, oh yeah, I can't do yoga, I'm not flexible or something, you know, well, yeah, we, yeah. Uh, yoga makes you flexible. I can't, I, right? I can't diet, I'm too fat. Right, right. <laughs> so, so, was it something particular about karate uh, that stimulated your interest first, or was it just karate was the highest quality thing that was around, so that's why you went into it? Well, well my original thought was, um, see, again, I'd read up on it quite a lot, and I'd looked at, um, I knew I had a couple of friends went to the karate uh, club, and it's, um, it was renowned for being a kind of it's a strong club in the area, strong mm. reputation, known for producing good karateka. Right. Um, so there was a couple of choices, but that was the main choice. But I originally wanted to do both karate and judo because mm. I had this idea of I wanted to be able to. But my mum had said to me, "Look, there's only so many nights in the week, and you've got schoolwork and other things to do." You know what I mean? And and my dad had to drive me. The nearest school was um, it was like a forty minute round trip to get to it. Mm. So so I was living in a rural area. So so my dad was happy to do that. But you know, I said, "Okay, there's limits on how far we can go and what we can do." So. Um, but like most people, I didn't really know. I just had this vague idea that, you know, well, karate looks good. I'll, and I know this club's got a good reputation, so I'll go and try it. But I could have, you know, if, if the local club had been a jiu-jitsu club, I would probably, if it had been good when I'd gone there, it would have been jiu-jitsu. You know, it wasn't that I made a considered choice. It was just, well, what's good locally? And that'll do for me, you know. So I just I got lucky, really. I just went to, you know, what was ultimately a very good school and very good instructors. Right, I see. Um, so, through your training, um, the practical application and kind of self-defense aspects uh, seem to appeal to you more over, like, just the performance of kata or or even, mm. uh, like, point sparring competition. So, what? why was that? Well, I, I think, I mean, looking back, I mean, at the time, I didn't realize this. I, I did compete. I went to every competition going because that's what our club did. Right. I didn't care whether I won or I lost. So that was obviously problematic. If you want to be good at something, you've <laughs> got to want to be good at it, you know. Uh, I did enjoy the movement of kata. I did enjoy the way that it felt, you know. Um, so I, I did like the, the aesthetics of it. I used to compete in kata competitions too. Mm. Um, but the, the, the self-defense side of it, what, the, the, what it appealed to me is it, it's, it's an honest measure of progress. I think that was the main thing. You know, it, it, it is, um, all the others seemed artificial. Somebody has decided this is the certain aesthetic we want from the cutter. 
well, that's arbitrary. It's man-made. It's artificial. Or somebody has decided this is a set of rules we're going to fight through. If they change the rules tomorrow, you're no longer skillful. You know what I mean? It's mm. just it's very arbitrary. But the, 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 the two or more human beings interacting in that primal way, like the self-defense way, that's, that's a, a very objective test of, of progress. So I think originally, you know, I'd got into, you know, like most kids do, you get into a fair few scrapes. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'd, that was part of the reason I started. I need to be good at this. You know what I mean? I, I need to be able to de- defend myself properly. But I think it's just because it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a good measure, I think. It's a, it's a realistic measure from which to gauge progress. You know, I, I'm a, it's a, an, an objective um, measure, datum to work from. So I think that's what it was that appealed originally. It felt real. So, yeah, does this stuff work when you when you really need to lean on it? That kind of approach. That, 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 that's right. You know what I mean? And, and it's, um, um, uh, yeah, well, well, exactly. And, and it doesn't matter what anyone, you know, if some guy changes the rules or decide they want a slightly different aesthetic or something like that. Well, those things change overnight just in the minds of men. Mm. But, but, but conflict doesn't. It, it just felt external to value judgments. It just felt, felt for... Um, more real from that perspective, you see. And I've always been like that. I mean, thinking I'm quite utilitarian that way. You know, if someone shows me something and it works, I'm on it. I get it. Right. You know what I mean? It, it's and I can remember right back to things like um, at school. You know, I'd be, get corrected for, you know, your grammar's not quite right when you've written this. And I thought, yeah, but the way I write it, it makes sense to me. The way you're asking me to write it, it seems contrived. It just right. seems like a dumb rule. Yeah. You know, so I, I've always been like that. Is you know, if someone can show me do this because it has an active, real-world result, then I'm all on board. Yeah. If it's just do this because we've decided that's the way it should be done, it doesn't really appeal to me. Yeah. Um, well, basically, all English grammar that makes no sense. So, so I can see how that <laughs> that wouldn't, uh, yeah, really uh, tickle your fancy. But um, well, so just because I mean, the objective of language is just communication. So hmm. if I'm communicating my point effectively. I understand what I'm saying, and the listener understands what I've said, then to me, language is working. Now, if someone says, no, I, I'm, you've split an infinitive there, yeah. what difference does that make? Do you know what I mean? Right. So it's, it's, it, that kind of thinking tends to run through you know, everything. So I know some people are kind of purists and like things done right, but again, there's right in terms of functional right, and there's right in sort of uh, cultural and shared values right, and the two you know, don't always align, I think. So one thing that I think is quite interesting is... is you mentioned how this uh, one-on-one interaction in a kind of self-defense environment is, is a true, you know, test. But how do you test it? How, how do you measure it? Do you know, do you, do you know what I mean? As yeah. a, a, apart from, like, going on the streets and, uh, you know, getting around. Well, so that's, the, so that's the flip side of it as well, you see. So at least if, um, if you're talking about, like, points competition, then you've got... a, a there's an arbitrary set of rules that agrees what's good, but from that position, you've got an objective test. So self-defense is the other way around. There's a real problem here. You know what I mean? There's a real, real issue. But you, as you say, you don't have an objective test. You can't, you, you know, and even if you did go out and look to fight, you, that's not the same as self-defense anyway. You know, it's a right. difficult thing to test. So, so my thing was always, well, okay, I'm going to study as, uh, I've got a little bit of personal experience I can draw on myself. And then I also want to, you know, read what everyone else has experienced this situation says and things and what their experience has been. And then we're going to create drills and ways of training that match that scenarios. Mm. So we're going to, like, like a soldier would do, you know, we don't take a soldier and throw them into battle going, you know, you'll be fine, you'll learn. What they do is they recreate what they, they know from experience to be, this is a, realistically, this will prepare you for it. 
So we do the same 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 kind of thing, you see. But it, it can the trouble with it as well is unless you're very stringent with it, it can shift. People like to create their own kind of, you know, if we make it like, if we shift the problem, then our solution works better. Right. But it shouldn't be that. It should be, well, the problem is what the problem is. We need to shift our solution if it's not working in the objective way. So what I did from day one is I sought out instructors who had um, had, you know, real life experiences and had been there and done that that would objectively tell me, yeah, that won't work. This will work. And then we'd create drills around those those kind of scenarios and that bits those bits of information, you know. And it, I mean, it's enjoyable too. You know, it just feels you know real. If you've done a self defense drill and you've escaped, you think that's a real life, real world skill yeah. that's workable in the way that I think. Well, you know, I won a trophy there. Right. Well, you know, it doesn't. doesn't and I'm not knocking it for others, by the way. I mean, I accept this is just Ian talking as Ian. There's for others, they would you know the competition's all what they want to do, and I'm fully on board with that and fully respect it. But it was just the way my mind worked. It was that realism that I, I think I needed to ground my practice in for it to have value to me. Right. Did I, did I, I, I obviously I've watched a lot of interviews and, and, you know, in preparation for this. Did I, am I right in saying that you were a, an engineer? That's correct, yeah. Oh, I was part of an engineering team. Right. My colleagues would dispute I was ever an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's very kind of them. Um, yeah. Do you think, do you think you gravitated towards that because of this type of thinking, or do, do you think this the engineer kind of problem solving kind of thinking influenced your karate? Uh, the, the reason I, got, I took that job was because it would allow me to train. That was it. When I was sixteen years right. old, right? Um, you know, it's time to leave school. There's a, a big local factory that has a great um, apprenticeship program, sends people to college, trains them up. So I thought, right, okay, I'll do that because it's convenient for training and it plays well and the conditions are good. So, so th- that's why I chose that particular thing. It wasn't that, you know, I, I, I feel naturally drawn to engineering. It was the other way around. It was my craft, it's my thing. Right. And then this job will support that thing. But, but, um, but I, I don't think, like, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I think like a, an engineer too much um, mm. Because that's often like a, a very dry and logical thing, and fighting isn't. It's very emotional and very chaotic, and you know. But but in terms of certainly in terms of that, you know, okay, what we have a problem here, we need to solve the, the get a solution that works for the problem. That's always been my way of thinking. Well, I think in martial arts, what we tend to see a lot of is I already have my solution. I need to reinvent the problem to fit the solution, which isn't how an engineer would think. You know, it was right. if it's working, it's working. If it's not, it's not. So in that way, it's the same. But I don't think it was because I've got a natural engineering mind. It was just that's happened to happen to be where I ended up working. You see. Okay. So you mentioned seeking out um, experienced teachers, and uh, it seems like one of those was uh, a friend of yours, uh, Jeff Thompson. So yes, yeah. I, I wondered for our listeners if you could describe uh, Jeff and and how he influenced you and your training. Well, 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 well Jeff was um, uh, obviously he was. Uh, been a, a doorman on the streets of Coventry when Coventry was the most uh, violent city for its size in Europe. Um, so obviously I had a lot of real life experience. Um, Jeff then uh, wrote some books um, like in the 1990s, basically saying, look, you know, the emperor's got no clothes. There's things in martial arts that we're doing that I can tell you objectively don't work. Now, prior to that, prior to when Jeff became famous, if you like, and everybody was reading his articles and his books, um, one of my uh, teachers, Doug James, he also had another student called Ian McCranner. Well, Ian McCranner used to work the doors with Doug. Right. 
So there was that connection martially before um, there was that connection, um, you know, between me and Jeff personally. So about the same time, I'm looking to write my first book as well. I'm thinking of doing it. And, and my instructor, Doug, had said, well, you should talk to Jeff because I know Jeff's writing books. Mm. And he, you know, told me that, you know, Jeff was this doorman of these seals. So that's kind of how that connection was made for, for me. Right. Um, but, yeah, no, lots of real-world um, experience was very objective. Again, was very, look, this is the problem as it really is. This is the solution as we need it to be. Uh, and and I say um, my instructor organised uh, a session with Jeff, one of Jeff's earliest seminars. Me and a few of my guys went along to it when we were training, and he was explaining things. We had this is it. This is this is this is where I need to be. This is the kind of karate or martial arts self defence that I that I want to be doing. I like the way that Jeff talked. I like the way that he mixed the philosophical and the practical. Um, I, I like the realism of it and the honesty of it and the rawness of it. And at, at that time for me, it was, yeah, this is, this is what, what I, what I want, you know? So, mm. um, and Jeff's been, you know, a good friend and a good mentor ever since. Okay. So, so a big influence in you. And, and I, I, the next question was aside from karate, was there other, any other arts that you regularly trained in? So I guess, um, there would have been, uh, that kind of reality based martial arts, uh, yeah. Anything else? Well, well, the, the thing with um, for, for me, I mean, the karate and the reality based were always one and the same. You know, right. I, I drilled the karate in a reality based way. Mm. But what I did quickly realize, if I took my gi off and just wore normal clothes, it was reality based martial arts. If I put my gi on, it was karate. Right. So it was, you know, it was my outfit that seemed to change what I was doing, at least to the people I was talking to anyway. And then it, from there, I've, I've also, also trained with uh, boxers, kickboxers. Uh, I did judo for a few years, you know, just to kind of augment the karate. So I always consider myself a karateka first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And what the other arts have done, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not really a practitioner of those arts. I wouldn't see it that way myself. But I've used training drills and elements of those to influence the, my, my karate where I thought, you know, things could be improved upon. Right. So those other arts have kind of enriched your, your karate. Yeah, so sometimes it would be techniques or the way that they trained or exercises or the way that they drilled. So it was one of these things that my, my judo instructor and me always used to joke about. When, whenever I was introduced to anybody, I would always, you know, hi, I'm Ian, I'm, I do karate and I'm here to improve my throwing and stuff. Mm. And Mike, my instructor, was go, when are you going to tell people you're a judoka? When are you going to tell people <laughs> that you do judo? Because you're doing judo, you know. But so it, was a, it was a long running joke between the two of us, you see. You know, he, mm. he would say, as soon as you're in these walls, forget all that karate stuff, you're a judoka, you're a judo player. Right. But, but, but to my mind, I never was. You know, I was always a, a karateka looking to take elements of judo into the karate to help improve, you know, my core art, you see. Right. So. Okay. So diving into your art and, and what you're known for a, a little bit more, you are you're, I suppose, known as the applied the applied Carter guy. So so, <laughs> in, in, in at least in some respects. Um, yeah, I'll take that. Okay. <laughs> so uh, so for our listeners, could you explain what? Uh, I've got three questions, which is convenient. What what is Carter? <laughs> How is it normally taught, and how do you teach it? Yeah, oh, yeah. They're, like, they're great questions. I can, mm. that, that enables me to succinctly tell everybody what it is. So, right. so um, in terms of what these kind of people, the definitions on this, different people will say different things. But this is what I see: um, kata were single-person drills designed to encapsulate the teacher, uh, the methods of a giving teacher or system. So they have loads of two-person drills that would work together. They take one half of that two-person drill and they just do it in the air. 
you put enough of these sequences end to end and you've got to cut there. So it's a way to help record drills in a solo template. And it's a way to give students a supplementary form of solo practice. So when they haven't got a partner, you, they can run through the cutter. You know, they've got a way to rehearse those movements on their own. So that's essentially what cutter is. You know, people often refer to it as things like shadow boxing and stuff, but it's not quite that because it's designed. It's not as free as that. It's designed to record specific techniques, ideas, principles, drill. But that's what it is. That's what I would say a cutter is. It's a, a repository of knowledge and a supplementary form of solo practice. Uh, typically, they were made by students as well. They weren't made by masters, So, if we can use those terms. So a given master would teach his fighting skills, and then the student would create the cutter for himself to enable him to kind of practice those things. And then he may teach that cutter in turn to his own students to help pass on the information he'd received. So that's what they are. Um, in terms of how most people teach them, we had this thing round about you know the 1930s, 1940s. Karate and most martial arts in Japan underwent something of a revolution, where they were deemed as being old-fashioned, out of date, archaic, violent, not nothing that any decent human being would be interested in. Mm. So um, Kano, the founder of judo, had the bright idea of basically robbing what we were doing in the English education system and using sport as a means to, uh, you know, we'll develop character with it. Mm. It was like boxing, the noble art of self-defense. So he switches things around and then it becomes more about character development and physical fitness. The karateka, the karate guys tried to copy that. Um, and so what they started doing was uh, teaching karate in the university systems where they didn't have a lot of time to get to depth with it. It was, <clears throat> It was just learn it all, learn it all quickly, and then get out in the big wide world and teach it. And it doesn't matter if you can apply it or not, because we don't care if you can apply it or not. We care about your character and your physical fitness and all that kind of stuff. So most people nowadays, when they teach it, teach that, that, that model where it's not well understood and it's become nothing but fighting another karate guy from long range, kicking, punching, and blocking, and that's it. And it doesn't work very well that way. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, my view is they're trying to bash a square peg into a round hole there. Now, what I've done is I've gone back to the old ways and like go back to like people like Itosu, who's a karate master who wrote in 1908. He was clear that the kata, or the karate of the, that time, the karate of the katas, was designed for dealing with untrained people, criminals, mm. uh, in self-defense scenarios, not a fellow martial artist on a mat or you know in a, in a, in a ring. So I don't approach the kata as dealing with other karateka from long distance, I approach the kata as being for dealing uh, with a violent but untrained person. And by untrained, I mean not versed in the same art as you mm. uh, at close range. So I tend to deal with it for self-defense. And as a result of that, I include locking, throwing, choking, strangling, trapping, all of this kind of stuff that was part of old school karate, but is generally not practiced widely to, um, to today. Although, you know, things are changing. Right. So you, you feel that you're... you're sort of going back to how it was originally taught. Yeah, in, in terms of intent, yeah. yes. You know, because one, one thing the, the old masters were uh, quite keen on is they were, they were pragmatists. If, if somebody could show them a way to improve it, they improved it. Mm. If you look back at the classical generation, not one of the old masters passed it on exactly as it was taught to them. Mm. You know, they, they all tried to kind of improve on it or blend together the different sources. Um, uh, so sometimes when people go like going back to the roots, they're, they're trying to do a martial arts almost like preserved in amber. And right. I think the, the irony is the old masters never did that. So I don't want to do that either. 
Right. So in terms of my, my overall approach is definitely an old school approach, but it's done in the modern world in a modern way. We use modern training equipment and modern training methods and all that kind of stuff. So it's um, it's a modern old school version, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. <laughs> that does make sense. Uh, I enjoy watching your videos, and one that I watched recently was titled Four Stages of Kata. Um, yes, yeah. And I really like that because I think those four stages, they're not just great for karate practitioners, but I think for any traditional martial artist, um, yes, yeah. if they're practicing forms. So could you elaborate on those four stages? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is, this is um, having read a lot of the work, because if I have a talent, one of my, and this is down to the way that my brain works. So um, if somebody shows me lots of different bits of information, one of the first things I want to do is, okay, what's the essence of this? Because if I get the essence of it, I don't need to remember all the other extra bits of information. Mm. <clears throat> so I don't need to remember my times tables if I understand how to do multiplication. You know, that's the kind of thing for me. So when I'm reading through the way that the old masters talked about how they related kata to fighting, I, I, I noticed the pattern. So my four stages is my attempt to draw together what all the various masters said. So this isn't what they said but it encompasses all of what they said, if you see what I mean. So they expressed similar concepts in different ways. And, and you're right, it does apply to any combat art. So, But I'll go through the four stages, then we'll use boxing as an analogy, because I think that one re resonates well with people. So, so the first stage is um, you learn the form, you learn the physical movement. Um, once you've learned the physical movement, what you then do is what we would call the bunkai, is you say, okay, how is that physical movement supposed to be applied? What's its purpose? Uh, but the point of all things in the traditional forms is it's not, if it shows you a throw, it's not saying this is the only throw we ever want you to practice. It's saying, here's a good example of the principles of throwing. We're supposed to get beyond the specific example to the principles. So those principles can be internalized and become habitual so they can be freely applied. So that would be our third stage is that we identify the underlying principles being displayed by the example in the form so that we can vary it and adapt it and, and train lots of different ways of doing it. And then the final stage is it's all academic until we get live practice of it. So having learned my various throws through the form, I need to grab hold of a resisting partner and practice it live. So the four stages are you learn the form, you learn the applications, will be the second stage. The third stage is you identify the underlying principles so you can adapt and vary. And the fourth stage is you gain live experience of doing it. And I think if you've got all four of those running, because um, it's not like stage two supplants stage one, you're doing all four of those all the time, but that would be the initial uh, the initial arc. If you're doing that, that's when it really starts to work. And we get past this notion that Kata's are dead, archaic, unchanging, not live. They are, they are designed to be things that inform our live practice. They're not supposed to be an alternative to live practice. So if I went into a boxing gym, the first thing they'd say to me, okay, we're going to show you a jab. So stand in front of the mirror, stand like this, extend your left arm out and back like this. Th that's a one-move kata. That's a solo form. Having learnt the jab, they'll then say, okay, right, this is what the jab is for. You can use it to set up stronger strikes. You can use it as a range finder. You can use it to keep the enemy back. So I'm, I'm learning there the applications. Mm. The next one is I learn the underlying principles so I can adapt and vary. So they'll then start telling me you can jab while moving backwards, you can jab while moving forwards, you can go clockwise, anti-clockwise, you can double jab, you can jab the body, then the head, the head, then the body. You go through all the variations. You don't stick with the formal, here's one jab. 
And then finally, when I've done all that, they say, okay, now you've learned all this, we need to test that you've got it, and we need to give these principles and techniques free reign. So step into the ring and start firing your jab out at a guy who's going to try and avoid that jab, and we'll see how it works. So I think those four principles are inherent in learning any combat skill. In fact, I would argue pretty much any physical skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I found when I'm teaching to karateka, especially when there's this uh, pre, sometimes pre-existing idea that um, cat is something separate from live practice. Uh, these four stages really help kind of communicate the idea, I find. Right. Is that a, does that kind of cover all the bases there? Or is very much so, of, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's very systematic, and I think that's very useful um, uh, uh, to, yeah, to anyone that's practicing forms that they may think are not applicable or they don't really feel like they're alive. Uh, that's a process they can they can go through and uh, get get value from from what they're training, right? Yeah, well, and then it really starts to live and breathe. Because what one of the problems I sometimes have is when I talk to fellow martial artists, they'll go, um, <clears throat> "Oh, kata's pointless and it doesn't work." And I, I said, "You know what? If I meant by kata what you mean by kata, I agree with you. Mm. But 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 I see kata as, as, as it's not a thing." It, it, it's part, it's a process. So, so one of the things I try and do is I always use the word solo form when I'm talking about what most people think of kata, right. because that, that's just one element of it, one aspect of it. So, um, and once people have done it and they run through the process, they go, oh, yeah, I get that. That's obvious. You know, it's one of these, it's not, you know, complicated to understand. People go, that makes sense. Right. And, it, and, and we do it all the time with every other technique. So we just apply it to the forms too. And then, you know, then that's when it really starts to, to work for us and we understand the wisdom of them then we understand how cleverly constructed forms are and how useful they can be to us right that's um yeah that's bringing that's bringing it alive uh, bringing bringing those things um into action and making them come alive and and you often hear you know masters or, or whatever referring to forms as dead forms right uh, mm. so so this is a, definitely a way to bring it to life well it, but the way it should be it's, it's like it's i always like it's like a seed I've, I've used that analogy a lot. Like cat is like a like an acorn. So if you if you just leave that acorn as it is, then then it it may as well be dead. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. But if you apply the process, so you go right. I'm going to plant the acorn. I'm not going to collect the acorns and polish the acorns and tell you how many acorns I've got and how shiny they are. What I'm going to do is I'm going to plant it. I'm going to let it do what it's supposed to do. And w- when you you do that and it starts to grow, that's when you say, okay, that's now it's fulfilling its purpose. So kata can be dead if you're using it in the wrong way. If you don't plant it, if you don't plant the seed, if you just keep it in its seed form and never understand what it's really supposed to do, then, yeah, it may as well be dead. Yeah. But, but if you plant it and let it grow, that's when it starts to you know, really kind of you know, live, and, live and breathe. So given these, um, these four stages, uh, obviously you've learned a lot of kata over the year. Do you have a personal... Uh, favorite uh, that that employs applications or principles that that you find particularly uh, I don't know, delectable or applicable or <laughs> whatever you like. So, uh, but but the, and and that they're two good words, yeah. Because uh, I do, but but it's um, so my uh, favorite one above all else is what most people would refer to as Nihanchi Shodan or Nihanchi Teki Shodan. That, that, that's the one I, I, I really like. Uh, and I also am a big fan of the Pinans because I think they're a nice summary of everything that went before. They're a nice summary of the Shuriteer line of karate, if we can use that that terminology. So they would be my favourites. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, but it's not always uh, like, for example, for Nahanshi, I love it because it's it's practical and it's functional. But I also love it because it's a small cutter. So I, I can practice that in hotel rooms and stuff when I'm traveling. Mm. I, I, I bust my knee up a few years ago at the point where I couldn't pivot for a year. Mm. So Nahanshi doesn't have any pivots in it. So I always say that when I was injured, all the other cutters abandoned me, but Nahanshi stood by me. <laughs> so so, so I, I, have, um, uh, I have an attachment to that one that's not purely pragmatic. It's also um, a bit romantic, a bit emotional as well. You see, so right. um, so delectable would be a good word. <laughs> but but I, I do find it particularly effective. Mm. Uh, but all, all the forms, when they're correctly analysed, are particularly effective. But for that one, I have um, an attachment to for reasons as, as well as practical. There's some reasons above and beyond that as well. Right, I see. Um, okay, so. I've so I've I've heard you talking about making karate relevant today by teaching it as it was originally taught. So obviously we've we've talked about that here. But what do you think the most relevant skills are today in terms of self-defense? Are they the same as they've always been, or or do you think there's some that are particularly relevant today that people should be focusing on? No, I, well the, the the one thing is that um, uh, a, a big part that's in one. But this I think we we. What martial arts are often bad at is dis- dis- distinguishing between different types of conflict and violence. So, so, so for certain certain ones, um, like you know, if I, I, well, we can paint. Well, am I painting a beautiful landscape in watercolors, or am I painting my living room ceiling? Mm. Depending, on, both are painting, but you know, what one I've got a different set of tools for one than I have for the other, and if I mix them up, it's not going to work well. So, so sometimes people see things like they'll see like the evolution of MMA, for example. So over the last 20 years, we've seen that combat sport radically shift in the way that it does things. So martial artists think, oh, fighting has radically changed. Well, well, that, that particular way of fighting within that rule set may well have radically changed and altered. But when it comes to like uh, physical self-defense, it, a big part of it is based on emotion and aggression and our where our hormones work, our nervous system works, the way our brain works under stress. And, and that hasn't changed recently. You know, that, that will take thousands and thousands of years to shift. So when, when two human beings or two more human beings uh, have an exchange in that very primal way, it's largely the same. Um, and that's that's what Cat has dealt for dealing with. The couple of things that do change is obviously the technology of weapons changes. So you won't find handgun defences in Katna because, well, no one had handguns back then. You know, you will find things that are relevant to, you know, knives and sticks and all that kind of stuff. But you, you won't find that. And the other thing that can shift is fashions can shift. So there's techniques in Katna that rely on like grabbing the top knot, for example. Mm. Now, for years, that wasn't fashionable, but thanks to the hipsters, it's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so if, if that stays, Katla's getting more relevant again, you know. But mm. so, so, but I think in terms of um, uh, the the the, uh, the the reality of it, that hasn't altered because that's largely determined by our biology more than anything else. And, mm. and I think the one thing that Katla is good for dealing with when it when it's um, approached correctly is is the chaos of it. Is I think is a people need to get. That the close range, speedy, uh, uh, the, the 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 chaos. It, chaos is the best word. And I always tell my students they need to embrace the chaos. Mm-hmm. Some people want to try and impose order on it. No, no, punch slower or punch like this, and then my thing will work. Mm-hmm. But what you're going to have coming at you is an explosive mass of limbs. They don't want a consensual skilled exchange. It's an explosive, very aggressive, very chaotic mess. And if we understand that chaos 
and are not freaked out by it and are able to work within it, that's when I think we become pretty effective in that environment. But it'd be different again, you know, those, that skill set wouldn't be the right skill set for out fighting a skilled martial artist. Hmm. Th- that's a far more cerebral game uh, than this. So it's, it's a matter, I think, of using the right tool for the right job and then not value judging either. They're, it's all good. I like, I like learning all of it, but we just need to pick, make sure we're using the right tool for the right job and not trying to apply consensual fighting methods to non-consensual violence because they, they don't survive that crossover. Right, and, and uh, that leads on to my next question, which is I've heard you mention that karate is for a non-consensual fight, uh, histor- yeah. historically. So um, could you help us understand the context of, of that a little bit better? For example how you think it was originally developed and, and for what reason? What was, what was going to be the outcome yeah. of, of using it? Well, well I mean, we can, the, 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 I think the best line for that is, um, so in 1908, there was a um, hugely influential uh, karate master called Anko Itosu. He was the guy who spearheaded getting into schools and teaching his, a form of exercise and stuff. So a hugely influential guy in the history of karate. And in 1908, he wrote his letter, um, which is largely known as his 10 precepts, to explain, look, this is what karate is. These are its benefits. Mm. And one of the things that he, that he mentions in there, it's a second line of the first precept, uh, where he said, um, karate is not intended to be used against a single adversary. It is a method of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet, should one by chance be confronted by a villain or ruffian. So that's a translation that I paid to get done off the original handwritten text by a person that wasn't a martial artist. Right. So, uh, so what, it's, what it says there is it's not for fighting a single adversary. So it's not for a consensual duel. Right. You know, for, for two people stand up and agree to fight one another in order to prove who's the best fighter. It said it's a method of avoiding injury. So not necessarily winning, just making sure you don't get hurt. And then he goes, if what, by chance one is confronted by a villain or ruffian. So what he's saying is karate is not for a consensual square go. With, a, a, with another skilled martial artist. It's for keeping yourself safe from the criminal element. So it's not for fighting, it's for self-defense. Mm. Uh, and there's all kinds of things to unpack there because sometimes martial artists have an arrogance about that where they'll say, well, I'm trained, and if that criminal isn't trained, that obviously is nothing to me, I'll defeat him with ease. Mm. But, but the, the f- fundamentally failing to get what the criminal's objective there is because he doesn't want to fight, he just wants to harm you and take things off you. So if you go into that with a, with a fighting mindset, you'll find that, you, to use one of my teacher's phrases, you'll find that you're sitting down to play chess where they're going to play drafts. Right. You know what I mean? You're playing an entirely different game. So you're not going to win because they're playing a different game and they know they're playing a different game. So to me, the way I divide it up these days and people tend to get it pretty well is we've got consensual violence, which is when two people, I say, I agree to fight you. Everyone involved agrees for that to happen. So that could be sport and martial arts or street fight. Hate that term, but, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, which is illegal and stupid and shouldn't be used as a synonym for self-defense. But So you've got that. People agree to do it. And then you've got non-consensual violence, whereas I do not consent to this. This mm. person wants to harm me and hurt me, but I don't want anything to do with it. So your objectives are different, and therefore the dynamics of the situation are different. Mm. So the, the, the old school karate is, is the, the kata is designed for non-consensual violence against criminals, mm. and on top of that, in the modern age, we've layered the for fighting each other skills on top of that. And but it's important to keep them different. Otherwise, uh, the analogy I use at seminars is it's like trying to knock a nail in with a paintbrush. It's not that there's anything wrong with the paintbrush; it's perfect for what it's designed for. 
but mm. you're using it for the wrong wrong thing. So we just need to be mindful of, as Sun Tzu said, know your enemy and know yourself and you'll never know defeat. So who's your enemy? What are their objectives? And what skill sets have you got that can apply to that enemy? You know, don't, don't approach it, you know, one size fits all kind of way, which sadly I think is probably the biggest problem in modern martial arts when it, it comes to self-defense, this um, insidious assumption that criminals behave just like they do. Right. Yeah, and that they're going to be fair or... or well, yeah. yeah, well, I've lost count of the amount of times I see self-defense techniques in books and magazines that start with the guys standing away from each other, mm. 10 feet apart, with the guards up. Right. You know, that, that, that's not it. You know, that, that's not it. You know, and then, you know, and then they, they approach it like um, uh, gameplay and then use all kind of like uh, intellectual gymnastics to try and get out of the fact that it's obviously problematic. So if I was having a one on one fight, taking a guy at the ground and putting on an ankle lock would be a perfectly fine way to win. If I'm doing that in self-defense where there can be more than one person, I can get stamped flat. You know, while I'm I'm doing that, because while I'm tied up with one person, I'm totally vulnerable to others. You know, so there's those kind of things where we just need to be mindful that the objectives have changed. Um, and we can train for all of it and we can enjoy all of it, but we just need to be make sure that we're using the right tool for the right job. Right. OK. Um, uh, a couple of more questions I'd like to ask you. Uh, uh, I, actually, I've got a lot of questions, but I'm going to keep it to two before we jump into <laughs> to questions for the listeners. Um, so I saw I saw a really great video of you sort of bringing traditional karate movements alive on, on the pads. Um, I, I don't know the tech techniques in, in the karate kind of terminology, but it looked like a reverse punch and then stepping forward. You were punching continually with the right hand. I know exactly what you really mean. Yes, right. I do know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really enjoyed seeing that traditional movement kind of come alive. So a, a couple of questions is, uh, how, how, did you, how did you develop that training method and what do you feel the advantage of, advantages of it are for any other traditional kind of martial artist or anyone listening. Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe you could explain it as well. I mean, I don't think I did a particularly good job <laughs> of explaining no, no, but, but, yeah. it. To, to me, you did. I know exactly which drill you mean. So yeah. I, I, I can gladly talk that through. Yeah. So, well, there's a couple of things with this. This goes back to this idea of modern versus old school. So in old school karate, they didn't have focus mitts. They didn't have this, you know, the mitts we put our hands on that the partner can hit. Mm. Um, so they're not part of traditional, in air quotes, karate. However, I'm sure that if I went back in time and said to the old masters, here, I've got these things called focus mitts, they would have used them gladly because they, they would have saw the utility of them. So for me, that was the point. You know, your focus mitts are that you can hit at different angles, you can hit as you're moving, you can, you can have your, your partner retreating or moving away from you. And in the video that you're referring to, it, it's basically a, a, a drill designed to get them going from punches to kicks and back. That, that's mm -hmm. what it does. So, so on one of them, it kicks and does a reverse punch, which steps into a kick and then a lunging punch, which steps into a kick and then what would now probably be called a Superman punch, a hopping punch. So we have you know a step, a slide, and a hop, effectively, all built into one drill. So the reason that I like doing that kind of stuff on the pads is it, it, it's, it's measurable. So people normally will look at a technique and say whether it's good or bad. Well, that's arbitrary. If you put a... Uh, uh, when it comes to impact, you stick it on the pads. You can hear whether it's good or bad. You can feel whether it's good or bad. Mm. So th that's the, the wonderful thing about pads is that they're uh, they're they're a fair test 
of how much uh, power there is in the technique. So I'd used Fork Smiths for a long, long time. And then when I started training with uh, Peter Considine, who's at ninth down, I mean, Peter's striking power and way of moving has been a huge influence on me. He yeah, had a lot of pad drills um, and does have, you know, he's coming up with new drills every single week. Mm. Um, and those drills tend to be more like on a more modern karate, for like more almost like a kickboxing style element. Well, I took those concepts and then I applied that to the traditional karate stuff. So we include the headbutting, the kneeing, the elbows, the, the, the throwing, all that kind of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So what, why I think it's a great way of practice is you actually get to hit something. And it's a, you know, and that's, again, very important. Self-defense-wise, your ability to generate impact is number one. Uh, the other one with it as well is it's just a really enjoyable form of training. Pe- people like hitting things it can be quite cathartic yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've had a bit of a tough day you know one of my friends calls it impact therapy he says yeah. he loves it always feels totally different man and and, and there's this uh, what i refer to as this repetition by stealth element as well which is a phrase of one of my other teachers um that when if when people are on the pads that they just get engrossed in it so much that they don't realize the amount of repetitions that they're um, so it's, it's a good way to get lots of methods practiced like that. So it's, it's a modern way of training, but but I think it it, it helps us um, achieve the objectives a lot better than standing in front of a wooden post with straw wrapped around it doing single shots. You know. So. Right. Okay. So the last the last um, karate question that I'm gonna I'm sp- going to specifically ask you now before we go into questions for more addressed to listeners and yeah just to let you know I do have a lot more but I'm conscious of your time so um, <laughs> what what do you think really great karate looks like in your mind and could you paint yeah could you paint the picture for that of that for us yeah yeah I, um, well there's two words that immediately jump to mind is functional and elegant mm. you know so um because what, what we, again, I think it takes us right back full circle, really. But you, you've got, um, when it comes to what it should look like, the aesthetics of it, uh, what a lot of karate can do is they go, I have a, a preconceived idea of what I think good karate should look like. Uh, and I want it to look like this just because. Now, if you can point out, well, that way, way, may have, way of moving may achieve that given, given aesthetic, but it's not functional. You'll get a lot of karate go, I don't care. Master X said this is the way to do it. It looks like Master X when I do it this way. That's why I'm doing it this way. I think if we flip it the other way around and say, well, what we're going to seek is function. Because if you seek that function, it develops a a very lean, beautiful aesthetic all of its own. So to to me, it needs to have that kind of um, uh, succinctness, that directness, that elegance to movement, not based on some arbitrary aesthetic, but based on function. Because mm. um, you know, function will lead to a nice aesthetic, but nice aesthetics doesn't always lead to function. Right. So um, I, I, I love it when I see you know my students just you know the, it's it's graceful, it's explosive, it's dynamic, and I can get wrapped up in the art of it. I can I can look at it and go, wow, that was so good, so nice to watch them move like that. Uh, uh, forgetting that you know that if they did that to a person, it would look anything but good. Right. right. <laughs> you know, it would look horrific. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. But. But when it's done on the pads, there's a joy in watching the human body move in that efficient way, I think. Mm-hmm. So it should be functional, but not ugly. You know, it should be functional and um, have a nice aesthetic to it too, which I think will naturally flow from the, the function. Now, when you apply it, it'll get a bit rough and ready, but that's, that's, you know, that's a, a different kind of aesthetic. 
but certainly when you you know you're banging pads and engaged in drills and all that kind of stuff, that function I think is what leads to the form. Okay. Okay. So for listeners, now I'm just going to ask a, a, a few more kind of targeted questions that perhaps could they could uh, it could benefit them. Now I know that you recently. Uh, wrote a book or authored a book on sort of mental performance I, I, yeah I, yeah I forget the title of the book but it's it looks yeah mental strength is mental the name strength of the book. yeah yeah, yeah. And, and I've heard you talk about how sort of seeking discomfort can lead to growth so could you elaborate a little bit on that idea for listeners and, and perhaps yeah. something they could benefit from well, well, this is this is sort of it's one of the everybody knows this, you know that, that that was one of the bits of feedback I got from the book. Is everyone went, yep, I wouldn't have maybe worded it that way, but you just reminded me of things I already knew. Yeah. But but it, it can be worth reminding people of this. I need reminded of this because it's it's one of these universal truths, really. Um, that, that well, I say there's two kinds of discomfort. There's the discomfort which just harms, you know, that, that serves no valid purpose, you know, that, that t- just. To, We've got to avoid that, like almost like a catabolic discomfort. But there's also that like anabolic discomfort, that one that we will grow from, and we're not always good at distinguishing between the two. So, so for example, um, if I went to a dangerous place and uh, people pulled knives and attacked me, and I got scared and run away, I shouldn't go. I should really face my fears and go back to that place. You know, right. that fear is entirely legitimate. It's trying to keep me alive. You know, it's saying don't do the dumb thing again. Mm-hmm. So, so that that fear, that discomfort, is one that we acknowledge. No, that's valid. I need to listen to that. Or if I'm exercising and I start to get a sharp pain somewhere, I need to listen to that discomfort because it's trying to help me. But there's other discomfort that you're better just pushing through. So if I'm in the gym and I'm working out and I'm starting to feel a little bit short of breath, and there's a part of me, ah, just quit. Yeah, I've done enough. If I, if I'm able to push through that discomfort that little bit, then I'll get fitter and I'll get stronger and I'll get healthier. So being in that discomfort can be be beneficial. The first time I walked into the karate dojo, as I mentioned, I was scared, and I was scared for a long time. Now, if I'd listened to that fear and went, I'm not coming back here, I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing now. So there's sometimes we just need to accept that this is going to be uncomfortable. But the only way to, for that discomfort to disappear is to keep exposing myself to it um, because it, it does disappear over time. So sometimes I think people run from fear and run from discomfort because there are some fears and some discomforts we should run from. But there's others that we need to say, no, I, I, I need to endure this and accept that there's nothing wrong with me for feeling scared and there's nothing wrong with feeling out of my depth. That's, that's a part of progress. And if I stick with this for long enough, it, I won't feel scared anymore and I won't feel out of my depth and then I'm ready to take the next step as well. It's beautifully summed up. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Three Kings. It's um, uh, Mark Wahlberg and I, I think Ice-T. and yeah, have, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a good George, movie. It is, yeah. I liked it, the George Clooney as well. Well, there's, you know, so it's called Three Kings and there's this bit when four of them go on a mission. So it's like Star Trek with the guy in the red jersey. You know, this fourth guy's not going to make it. Mm. Um, but before he goes, he says to George Clooney's character, I'm really scared. And he says, yeah, he says, you know, what you need to do is you do the thing and then you won't be scared of it. He goes, well, that's dumb. It's, it should be the other way around. You know, I, sh- mm. I should feel not scared, then I can do it. And he says, yeah, well, it is dumb, but that's the way it is. Mm. There's a throwaway line in the movie, but I thought that's exactly right. You know, the f- fear doesn't go away until you marinate in it and then it, it, it disappears. Mm. <clears throat> so that was the point of the book, really, just, just given all the various examples. And, and again, I've used the analogy of weightlifting quite a lot in the book, which is 
the, the strength thing. If I, you know, I've got my weights rack next door, if I walk in there and put every single weight I've got on it and try and bench press it, I'll just rip myself to pieces. Mm. So I've exposed myself to too much stress and too much discomfort. But a measured amount, like 5% over what I'm comfortable with, you do that for a few weeks and, oh, I can do this no problem now. So now it's another 5%. Then it's just taking those incremental steps and being aware there's a process and being aware that discomfort and failure and feeling out of your depth and feeling confused are all part of progress. So if that's happening, if you're feeling those things, it's not a bad thing. It's not failing on anyone else's part. It means that you're, you're doing something special. You're doing something that will lead to growth. How do you recommend people identify the fears that are holding them back and that should be perhaps faced? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think he's, to, to me, the, the best thing to do is, 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 is just keep asking why. Right. You know, so, so, so for example, I'm, I'm about to leap off this building onto this metal spike. <laughs> yeah. I'm scared. Why do I want to, well, if I did that, I'd die. Okay, yeah. that's a valid theory. Don't do that. That's a dumb thing to do. Right. Do you know what I mean? But, but in other cases, it's, you, you follow it through. And like, for example, when I, I quit my full-time job to do this full-time, that was associated with a lot of fear. So you go, well, why am I scared of doing this? Well, it, you know, it might not work out and you might end up with no money. Well, what will happen then? Well, you'll get another job. Right, okay, so so what? You know, other people might laugh at you and say, look what you did, you idiot. You threw away years of your career. And, yeah, so what? People laugh at me. That's nothing. Right. You know what I mean? And then you, you kind of weigh out saying, if I face this fear, it, it's not really justifiable. It, it's not going to result in any great harm or death. There are risks involved, but ultimately there's benefits as well. For the other ones, you go, there, there are severe risks involved here. And there are no benefits. But mm. I think people know. Mm. If, if, you know I, I know I do. And I, I, I'll do it to myself to this day. There'll be things where I'll find justifications in my own mind. But there's part of me that knows the justifications. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not doing what I should do. Mm. And it's okay to take a rest every now and again. And it's okay to say not now. And it's okay to, but at some point, if people want to make progress, you've got to, right, okay, this is uncomfortable and it is difficult, but I'm going to do it anyway. Right. Okay. Um. You have been around many, many top-level martial artists. So is there one mental or emotional trait that you see consistently in these top-level guys, including yourself? And um, what traits, yeah, so what trait would, do you, if there is a trait, what trait do you see consistently and uh, that might be worthy of development for, for anybody that's listening? Yeah, well, I think it, all the martial artists that, that I know at high levels, are, they're all very different individuals. Mm. So there's, there's certain things that, you know, that others have got. To, but the two things which do go together, I think, is the first thing is they have a high need for achievement. Mm. You know what I mean? So it, it's, it's not enough to, oh, well, I'm an average black belt. They want to be the best they can be and very clear on what that objective is. So that's the first thing. They have a high need for achievement. And the second thing is they have a low fear of failure. Mm. You know what I mean? So they're the, the prepared to risk it. And if it all goes wrong, yeah, you know what I mean? Just mm. laugh it off, pick myself up and go again. So mm. I, I, I would, and I think that's probably true of anyone who wants to achieve anything. You've, you've got, I, I, I want this and I really want this. I'll put it with the discomfort. I'll put it with the hard work. I'll put in the hours. I'll put in the graft, you know, because normally because it's, a, it's something they love. So it, it, it's not too much of a chore. You know what I mean? Mm. It, it's, it's like, I, I love this and I'll, I'll put up with all the, the, the stuff that comes with it. 
and I'll try it and I'm not scared to make a fool of myself and I'm not scared to mess up and I'm not scared for people to say that's rubbish or useless or I don't like it you know what I mean it's, uh, but, but I'll do it I'll high need for achievement and low feel of failure I think if you've got those two things or you strive to have those two things you, you become very difficult to stop okay okay last last question aimed uh, for listeners how can traditional martial artists uh, benefit from more modern approach to training and how might modern martial artists, for example, mixed martial arts guys, mm-hmm. benefit from a more traditional approach? But I think there's, there's again, there's um, definitions within there because what some people would call traditional, others will call modern, you see. Mm. I think the one thing that, um, well, a few things that, people like me can benefit from, you know, a traditional artist like me if, um, is looking at things like MMA. Uh, MMA is not dogmatic. Mm. If something's proven to have value, they'll adopt it wholesale. Uh, they uh, uh, measure everything by effect. You know, I, th- I think these are, these are kind of valuable things. It's not preserved in amber MMA. It's a living, breathing thing. N- nobody in MMA at the moment is, is saying things like, well, this is not how they did it 20 years ago, so we'll do it this way. Mm. You know, this is not how O-Sensei did it. You know, none of them are doing that. They're saying this is proven to be working at the minute, therefore this is what we're going to do. Mm. So I think that's one of the, the, the benefits, I think, that traditional martial artists could benefit from, being a bit more open, a bit more pragmatic, uh, letting the tree grow, you know, as, as I mentioned before. And on the other way around, I think one of the things that traditional martial arts have, it, it, it's, a, it's a lifelong thing. So, you know, children can do it for discipline and enjoyment. Teenagers can compete and they get the excitement of that and they get to prove themselves to themselves and their peers. Uh, 30-somethings, 40-somethings get, you know, they've got families and jobs and they get the self-defense side of it, you know, to protect what they've got. As we get older, it keeps us moving. It keeps us physically healthy. You know, there's, there's value through all the way through. Mm. Whereas I think in MMA, what we tend to see is you get a lot of 20-something males beating the living daylights out of each other. Well, that's <laughs> only going to last so long, yeah? And, and then again, you, you and, and, and again, I've been there. I, I did that, and I thought my body would last that way forever. And now I'm in my mid-40s, my body just a certain things because now you're not doing that. <laughs> you know, right. I don't care how much you want to do it. It's not happening. Right. So in order for that longevity... I think that um, I also think MMA is it's a little bit like a, it, 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 it's not far off being it's, it's a teenage martial art in terms of how long it's been going really mm. in its modern form and I think sometimes it behaves a little bit like a teenager I'm not saying the individuals within it do I'm saying the art does mm. in terms of I know everything everything that's gone before is useless I'm here now I get how the world should work right. you know and then you get the older ones saying yeah you know what I mean this you're missing the big picture really I think sometimes there's, there's benefit in the fact that the traditional martial arts have been around for a while, mm-hmm. so they can learn some of our values and, and, and ethos and avoid making some of the mistakes that we made. So I see that happen, and now you know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts who've never actually sparred live, and you can get black belts from you know online courses and all the stuff that traditional martial arts have to suffer and endure. Mm-hmm. I can see it starting to appear in, in, in the, them as well, so they can learn from our mistakes as well. I think. Okay, okay, and I'm going to ask you some bonus questions. As I mentioned, these are they're meant to happen a little bit quicker. Most of the time, it doesn't really happen. So, <laughs> but they're they're just fun. So, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna fling a few of those your way, and uh, we'll see how we get on. So, can you tell me something that's true for you that almost nobody agrees with you on? That almost nobody agrees with me. Almost on, true. nobody agrees with you. 
that's difficult because I, I spend most of my life arguing with people. The one that's jumping to mind was a little bit trite that Marmite is the world's most delicious food. I yeah. certainly believe that. Certainly. But I, I know there's a great swathe of people that don't, you know, love the stuff. I'd have it as, you know, it was once asked what my last meal would be and it would be Marmite on toast. You know, oh, so yeah, yeah. That, that's one that hardly anyone ever agrees with me on. You know? With loads of butter. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's of course, of course, that's it, you know, and then, so, yeah, that's one. Another one, um, um, I think the food things, I love root beer as well, and I know most Brits don't. They right. find it revolting, which is why you can't buy it here. Yeah. But I really do like root beer, so there's a couple of food-based ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anybody who's not from the UK, you can probably order Marmite online, and if you do, you'll discover that either you hate it or you love it. Uh, that's pretty much how it goes, right? It, it is, and it's an interesting fact, it's illegal in Denmark. <laughs> you're kidding me really? no it's true the, the B vitamin concentration is too high for their food uh, laws there wow so 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 yeah so, so that's it so any food stuff that's banned in a European country you, you've got to want to try that right exactly exactly <laughs> okay um, what is your favourite quote or one, um, one of many um, Horace's um, uh, a man's character is his fate mm, wow that's that is a good one um, yeah, I love that one because to me, what it sums up is that um, invariably your, your your character will determine your actions, your thoughts, and that will determine how your life's going to end up. So mm. it works for me in two ways. The first thing is what I need to concentrate on is being as good and as productive and as likable and as helpful a human being as I can be, and that will benefit me as well as those around me. Mm. It also reminds me that those people in life, and we've all got them, that are difficult, awkward, hate-filled horrible people i don't need to worry about them because their own characters will will sort them out you know they, mm. it, it, um, so that, that's why i like that one. Oh, yeah and that's a good one let's hear that again so the, 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 the quote is a man's character is his fate it's horace yeah. that said it wow that's yeah. uh, very succinct um yeah. uh a favorite um movie documentary or book that might be useful uh, to anyone Oh, right. So, um, uh, favourite movie. Uh, um, I love Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. Watch that film when I was a kid. It's something that I always, every time that's on, I've got to watch it again. <laughs> so that, that's one I really enjoy. Uh, a c- comedic movie that I absolutely love that is uh, called uh, What We Do in the Shadows. It's a, n- um, a uh, New Zealand-made film about four vampires sharing a flat. It's the funniest thing I've ever watched. <laughs> okay, excellent. So, so, so there's one if, if people haven't got it. You know, yeah, and, that um, sounds like a, it, a good indie film, yeah? Yeah, 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 but it's just so funny. I've I, I stumbled across it on Netflix, and uh, I was supposed to be going to bed early, and I just lay there rolling around laughing. If everyone needed cheering up, I'd find the DVD, throw that DVD on, laugh from start to finish. So I love that thing. It's just so beautifully ridiculous. It's really, really good. Very so, good. Um, yeah, so lots of... Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf. I've got thousands of books, so there's no no favourite one I could recommend. Okay. I love, love reading, but uh, there's there's a movies, a couple of movies I'd recommend anyway. How about a documentary? Um, I'm just trying to think of ones I've watched recently. I I, I, um, I can't remember the title of it, but I, I do watch a lot of documentaries. Um, but one I found particularly moving recently, and I, I'm sorry that I can't remember the the, the title. But um, you, you know the uh, the TV series Spartacus. You know there was a TV series and. Okay. I don't know if, if you know, it's very, um, like, violent, graphic um, uh-huh. series. But, but the guy who played the lead in the first series developed uh, cancer. Oh, 
Right. Uh, and therefore, they had to stop filming while they got, um, well, hopefully they hoped he was going to get better, but he didn't. Mm. Well, there's a documentary uh, about him right from the start of him discovering he got cancer right through to his death. Wow. And that was a, uh, it was a yeah, very moving thing because you see this journey with him where he feels, you know, that he's getting better. He, he retains his positivity throughout, but it just doesn't work out the way that he's planned. And uh, I'm, 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 if people don't want to know how it ends, then <laughs> yeah, no, okay. The, but Check the, it the out. Really got, yeah, but the, the really got me that was I thought was really emotional was um, uh, he, in his final thing on the thing before he, he died, he was saying, "I just know everything will be okay." He said, I know my wife will be okay, and I know my kids will be okay. And I'm feeling, I can feel myself starting to fill up. You know, it's really moving. Yeah. And then it cuts to the end of the documentary where they see his family, and a year later, and, you know, they're obviously missing dad, yeah. but they're, they're okay. You right. know what I mean? So that right. was one I found particularly moving. Yeah. And it's a nice reminder that, you know, we get these trials and tribulations, but on a long enough time arc, everything ends up being okay. You know what yeah. I mean? No matter how tragic and horrific, we just got to keep on getting through it. But I, I can't remember the name of the documentary, but I watched that one recently and was, was really taken with it. Really did enjoy it. But we should be able, if, if people want to watch it, they should be able to search Spartacus and, and find the actor and then they... Yeah, the Google, the guys. Person. Google everybody. <laughs> but well worth watching. You know, it's, it's, okay. it's a... It's 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 a sad one, but I I I've always liked tales of you know people battling the odds. And what I liked about this one was it wasn't a happy ending. He didn't. Mm. It wasn't like and I did this and I got cured and we lived happily ever after. Mm. But I think sometimes that's what makes it all the more beautiful and all the more poignant. You know, I think mm. so. Yeah, that's well worth checking out. And that's life as well, isn't it? It's not always absolutely. Uh... Yeah. Okay. Final question for you, Ian. Final question: Three people, living or dead, you can choose. And have them to dinner. Who would you choose? And they can be <laughs> anybody, living or dead. Three of them, round to dinner or down the pub. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I interviewed uh, Steve Maxwell the other the other week, and he said, "Well, I don't, I don't really do dinner with people." I said, "Okay, grappling match. Then. <laughs> <laughs> you can grapple anyone, <laughs> living or dead. But, so up to you what the situation is. But uh, yeah, who, but, who would you uh, choose, and where would you go?" Yeah, karate wise, I'd have to be Itosu, Anko Itosu, I'd, just because I'd love to say him, you know, this little Okinawan art you practice is now a worldwide phenomenon. So what you did changed the planet, you know what I mean, to some small way. So, but I'd want him to see, look, this is how karate is now, and what do you think about it? What do you like? What do you not like? I'd love to get his views on how his experiment turned out, I think, you know, so that would be, that would be one. Um, in terms of um, uh, other people I'd, I'd like to talk to, I, the comedian Louis C.K., American comedian, yeah. I just find hilarious. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd love to be able to kind of just chat with him. I just find him really funny. You know, he just always, always amuses me. And one guy I always love listening talk, to talk is Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, yeah. the, the physicist. Um, the, just the way he talks and the way he explains physics and the, you know those wonderful universe which which we inhabit always amazes me. Yeah. So he's he's one I would love to be able to sit and you know okay go over that again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> explain yeah. that to me again. Yeah. And so again and again and I, again, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, until until I've got it. So I think that would be. So I've got my little bit of martial history there. And I've got some good humour and I've hopefully learned something too. So that would be a that would be a fun day down the pub. I think. Perfect. <laughs> Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. To, to chat with you and to learn a lot from you, to, in, all, in all honesty. So I really, really thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed that a lot. Thank you very much. 
Hey guys and girls, before you go, I want to tell you about the Mindfulness for Modern Life bundle I've created for you. You can get this for free when you sign up for updates at warriorstrategy.com. Now in this bundle, you're going to get an 8 Tai Chi Chuen Performance Enhancers PDF, a powerful Qigong video, and a mindfulness audio track. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to warriorstrategy.com. Hey, this is Robin Gamble, thanking you for listening, hoping you enjoyed the content, and kindly asking you to share with your friends if you did. Thanks again, and see you next time.